1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined, joined by Kevin Barron, um, who is the author of the recently published Presidential Privilege and the Freedom of Information Act, which we often know of as FOIA. Um, and this was published in 2019 by the Edinburgh University Press. And this is part of a series called The New Perspectives on the American Presidency, This is a fascinating dive into our understanding of FOIA and how it operates, not just in terms of releasing information, but with regard to our understanding of how Congress and the President and the Presidency function. But I'm going to let Kevin tell us a little bit about that. First, I'd like to introduce Kevin Barron and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hi, Kevin.
2: Hi, Lily. Thank you for having me. Um... So I, I guess I'll, I'll briefly start by saying that I've recently moved from Florida to Tennessee and am at Austin Peay State University uh, as an assistant professor in political science there. Uh, this project is something that began, gosh, probably about seven years ago at this point when I was a graduate student at the University of Florida. And it came from, uh, I was taking a legislative development course and an assignment there um, that I had to work on, which was essentially look at a piece of policy and, and begin to trace um, or think about where the policy came from. And at the time I had been involved um, previously in, a, in a, an old career, um, I had filed a lot of FOIA requests and had done a lot through um, through that um uh, process and was very familiar with it. And so I, I decided to look at the bill and, and where it came from. And it was one of those things where, you know, when you start in and you start to read up about what had happened and what was going on, and as you begin to unravel it, it gets more and more fascinating. And so uh, I began to focus um, my research on that. And this eventually turned into actually my dissertation. Um, in part, and then from the dissertation, I, I did some additional research, and that grew into what the book became. Um, but it was really it was sparked by this idea that you know FOIA passed in 1966 and was signed by Lyndon Johnson. And when I first began digging into this, realizing that Johnson hated the bill um, and he fought very hard to prevent it from passing, and did not want. Uh, Didn't want it to even get through Congress. And so, you know, beginning to grapple with the idea of, you know, this was considered part of the Great Society program, except that Johnson didn't want it. And so then what happened and how did this happen? And especially in, in some parts, thinking about how did a Democratic Congress seek to get a policy through that really, in some ways, checked executive power on a president of their own? Um, And especially at a time when so much was happening uh, that garnered most of our attention, you know, we're thinking about civil rights, we're thinking about uh, the Vietnam War, other things like that, that FOIA sort of floated under the radar in part. And so, you know, this was something... Uh, as a policy, I began to dig into and of course, you know, over the years, um, and through the dissertation and into the book writing, you know, this has kind of taken on different forms, and different ways of thinking about it. But at the same time, it became a way of, you know, trying to develop a, a analytical model, if you will, um, that helps us understand the politics around policy making, um, in part, and also thinking about how policy that tends to reform our institutions and kind of change the nature of things. Um, and what goes on at that very micro level, you know, at the individual level and, and who some of these players are that were able to do that um, just is, is fascinating to me. And so I spent a, a lot of time at various archives, presidential libraries, the National Archives, um, digging through documents to really try and recreate much of... Uh, What the conversation was um, from Truman all the way through Jerry Ford um, in, in looking at not just the conversations within Congress or within the White House, but between Congress and the White House as well on this issue.
1: And, and the scope of your book sort of concentrates on that period between Truman and Ford, um, obviously with Nixon being a kind of watershed moment in, in some of this. But I also wanted to pull you back a little bit because your book opens with an interesting preface um, citing documents and, and discussions from the 1600s in the colonies. And you start out, to some degree, giving us a, a, a kind of theoretical approach to understanding the role of information in self-government. Can you just give us a tiny little bit about how that is the theoretical frame around which you're then diving into this sort of realm of policymaking and access to information?
2: Yeah, absolutely, um, and and I'm glad you liked the, the preface. Uh, that was kind of a fun uh, a fun part to to work on. You know, we it's funny, you know, in, in in pop culture and on social media, you know, we see quotes all the time from from writers of the Constitution and and you know these things, and uh, especially I was going to say I think Adams. Jefferson uh, are often cited and especially talking about information and the importance of information and the importance of the press and why they were included in the Constitution um, and things of that nature. And interestingly enough, you know, when we delve back and look, uh, when the colonies were still controlled by the crown, um, the British laws Really were very fierce and opposed any kind of open government. They didn't allow the press access. Um, it was often considered a crime to write about what government was doing, uh, and that carried over into the colonies. and And I know I have a quote in the beginning, I um, you know where it's talking about some of the punishments um, that could be handed out for anybody reporting on um, what the government was saying or or government activities, which could be, you know, anything from, um, you know, being bored through the tongue to being put to death. And when we think about, you know, as the the revolution approached, as the colonists began to foment dissent against the crown, uh, information and access to information was key, not just to what was going on, but in spreading the ideas that would lead to the American Revolution and eventually to our democracy. Uh, you know, and the the writers of the Constitution were, of, of course, um, many of them steeped in in Enlightenment thought. But it was really, you know, we think about someone like um, uh, Paine and, and Common Sense and how popular that pamphlet was during the colonial period. Uh, you know, and and we look at folks like um, Adams, who wrote heavily in newspapers, or um, Benjamin Franklin, who wrote a lot of opinions in newspapers, it was spreading the idea of that information about that what was going on was not okay. And that, really, that idea, in part, is what became institutionalized in American democracy. And we think about the importance of an informed electorate, we think about the importance of informed citizens... Um, And really, I mean, in any democracy, not just in in the U.S., but the importance of how uh, we expect citizens to be able to make decisions and to be active in any healthy democracy. And in part, that relies on understanding and knowing what our government is doing. And so really, in many ways, you know, that becomes ingrained within the framers of the Constitution. Um, Although, again, at the same time, you know, by the time you get to President Adams, Uh, In the late um, 18th century, you know, you start getting the Alien and Sedition Acts um, and things where, you know, these folks who were so uh, fervently in favor of ensuring uh, public access to government information begin to roll that back once they're the ones in power. And so, you know, in a way, we see this drawn out over our entire nation's history where, you we like to espouse these democratic values and understand, I think still to this day, the need for um, open government, if you will, uh, or at least enough access to understand what is going on with government, but also that government itself understands the need for certain things to be to be and remain secret, um, as well as a control over information, especially politically and at certain times. And you know, And I, I do cover some of that history in the, in the preface really to help as a way to build us to um, where the book uh, jumps off with Truman and the immediate post-World War II moment and kind of understanding then how we got to this place and, and really how the Cold War began to change, um, especially among in the executive branch, the president's thinking on the importance and control over public information um and not just to the public but also to congress um and, and really most of the presidents consider any information given to congress as the same thing as being public as as congress will go ahead and make most of that information public even if um the president may not want it to be so
1: and so i wanted to take you there because your your book does move chronologically through administrations and and through you know sort of sections of the Cold War and the post Cold War period, and since you start with Truman and the rise of you know our antagonism with the East, um, particularly the Soviet Union, uh, what is it that that sort of shifts in the post World War II period that also then shifts some of the perspective with regard to how? the executive operates and what Congress's role then is in response?
2: Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what I found interesting is, you know, with Truman, by 1947, you get the Truman Doctrine. So, you know, we we see coming out of the war, um, you know, as the split with the Soviet Union happens or the split with Russia that becomes the Soviet Union um, and, and a lot of these issues, we, we see it as a threat, both externally and internally. And so 1947, Truman gives his speech in support of, um, or the US efforts to support um, what was going on in Greece, uh, largely, you know, they're dealing with a communist insurrection. And so it was a shift in in a way in American foreign policy uh, where Truman gave notice essentially to any country saying that the United States would support uh, democracy um, against communism really in any form. And that could mean that the U S would do it um, economically, politically, and potentially militarily if need be. Uh, But it was this, this shift away from, you know, avoidance to one of, um, you know, not necessarily direct engagement, but but one that, that changed our role and signaled to the rest of the world that the United States would not allow this sort of spread of communism. Now, again, a lot of this is, is very foreign policy, which is not the the focus of the book, but it, it lends itself because I, I, I create what I refer to as this Cold War paradigm, which is a, a mindset shift, if you will, Um, Within the executive branch that that uh, is a learned response to these events and you have at the same time ongoing um, domestically is is these concerns over, you know, communist infiltration. Um, Not just within government, but, you know, just amongst the populace. And so you had seen, you know, the the House Un American Activities Committee goes back to the 1930s and they come back uh, in many ways, are much more fervent after the war than they were beforehand. Uh, And so you see, in a sense, where Truman takes the lead and this lead in this anti communist um, positioning. And so he positions the, the executive branch to be um, very strong as well as in, to begin to take control. Um, he passes an executive order requiring loyalty oaths. Uh, and Congress, in many ways, is right on board uh, with Truman throughout a lot of this. Um, they're, they're kind of walking hand in hand. Uh, Congress sees this uh, broadly as, as absolutely um, they appreciate and like Truman's leadership. They, too, are very concerned about rising communist threats, both um, domestically as well as externally, and begin to ratchet up um, their own take on this stuff. And this is where we see, you know, the roots of McCarthyism and Senator McCarthy coming out and, and, and this going on over the next few years what happens, and I, I note this in the book, is the Internal Security Act of 1950. And this begins to create now a rift between the branches. And so Congress is working on this bill that really is tackling a lot of these these kinds of issues about the Cold War, about the rise of communism, about domestic threats, um, and what can be done about this. But Congress in its fervency, in many ways, goes a bit too far for Truman, where Congress um, within the legislation requires that a lot of information be made public or be given to Congress. Um, and many of the, and many of the information that, that they included in the bill, um, different things like you know, missile programs, um, even military bases. Uh, Truman didn't want any of that information getting out. And so this is where we begin to see this split happening between um, the executive and legislative branches. Uh, over the control of information. And so what happens is Truman ends up vetoing the bill and he comes back to Congress and says, look, there are several sections that I just cannot stand by and allow this to happen because if this information were to become public, um, it would aid our enemies. And he said, you know, there are spies uh, who are trying to get this information and Congress would just readily make it publicly available. So Truman vetoes the bill. And Congress comes back and overrides his veto on it saying, "Uh uh-uh, we're going to do this. And so this sets in many ways, um, really sets up the next, well, you know, the next 40, 50, 60, 70 year um, of congressional executive relations around this issue and around control of information. And in many ways, Truman helped set up um, for Eisenhower, who begins to institutionalize a lot of this, but you know, I, I approach it in the sense that you know, with the events like the Cold War, with the rise of, of communism and that communist threat, you know that a lot of this becomes a learned response from the president. And so we see it with Truman where the president learns that control over information becomes very important. And he also learns that Congress has different motivations than the president does on this. and, and Congress perhaps, maybe far more uh, political in the sense that they want to politicize a lot of this is it may be beneficial for them. So controlling what information then that the president allows Congress to have becomes um, very paramount, especially at this time.
1: And, and so into that, you know, you have, you have the the part of the book, which is really this sort of understanding and unpacking, of what we understand now to be executive privilege. Um, and and you talk about it historically, um, you talk about it, you know, sort of functionally as it's growing and evolving during the Cold War. And then you talk about it as, you know, a, a means of the executive branch, in particular the president, to control policy in certain regards. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, the the idea of executive privilege or presidential privilege as the book is titled, um, and how this is connected to the idea of FOIA and also what it is that's distinct between the president and the Congress in terms of access to information.
2: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this part was very fascinating for me and, and I know, um, uh, other scholars, for example, uh, Mark Rosal has has done a lot around executive privilege, um, but to for me, digging into the the, the deep details around this particular period um, was absolutely fascinating. In part because I, I find fascinating, you know, the idea that you know executive privilege really was this this giant gray area of power and, and of inter branch struggle uh, at least until the 1974 um, Supreme Court decision in, in US v Nixon. And so it really comes almost as like a whole cloth that Eisenhower creates executive privilege, if you will, at least in those terms. Um, although he technically it was never the term executive privilege, he did not coin he, he used uh, well it was uh, attorney General Brownell he used presidential privilege. Um, in, in a letter. And so you have in, in, in 1954, um, and it cracks me up too, the, the coincidence, because it was on the same day that the Supreme Court handed down the Brown v. Board decision. Uh, Eisenhower sends a letter to his Secretary of Defense, who was subpoenaed to testify before Congress for the Army McCarthy hearings. And at this point, because of where we had gotten to with McCarthyism, and in some ways, you know, as we had talked about a moment ago with Truman, you know, the split between Congress and the White House uh, over the fervency of of information. And so Eisenhower was not wanting anyone to come testify uh, before Joseph McCarthy and this committee, and he was not having it at all. And so he drafts this letter to his secretary of defense saying that you and no one else within the Department of Defense will show up and testify before uh, Congress in this matter. And he includes in there a memo written from his attorney general, uh, Harold Brownell. And Brownell d- digs deep into making this argument in the memo, going all the way back to Washington, asserting that there is an inherent constitutional power that the president has um, to deny information if the president considers it within the public interest. Um, and especially in, when it comes to issues of national security, um, that the president can do this. And, and Brownell cites different examples over time. Uh, Again, starting with Washington, that there have been times where the president has refused information or refused to allow testimony um, to Congress from various administration folks um, because of these concerns and that, you know, this is something and he terms it that it's a presidential privilege um, to have. And so in a sense, you now suddenly um, you, you have the issue of executive privilege. It now exists and it was put out there by Eisenhower, who really created this in a way, um, it becomes a very powerful tool for the president because Eisenhower needed justification to deny Congress. Um, And so in creating the justification for this, it changed in many ways everything. It set this precedent um, because now Eisenhower is not just asserting or not just denying Congress uh, access, Eisenhower is saying that he has the constitutional right to deny Congress access. And, uh, you know, and I stayed in the book, I, I'm not a lawyer or, or I, I try to avoid a lot of legal implications of executive privilege that often are looked at. Um, to me, the politics around the situation are far more fascinating. And in part it was because of Congress, because of McCarthyism, um that Eisenhower did not want to allow anyone to testify before them on these matters but in doing so he creates this new presidential power and and puts this out there saying that no there is an inherent constitutional right for the president to deny congress this information and that largely stands at the time in 1954 it does um but what begins to change then, and, and I talk about in the book that you know this is this moment where now executive privilege gets institutionalized in the executive branch. Um, but that year's midterm election, the Democrats take back control of Congress as it was a unified Republican control at that in 1954. What also happened at this time, I should say in 1954 was that a freshman congressman from California named John Moss, he was on the civil service and post office committee. Now Eisenhower fired almost 3000 federal employees early into his administration, arguing that um, they were subversives. They had communist ties. You know, again, this is all part of that cold war mindset. And, Moss, being on the Civil Service Committee, which was going to hold a hearing on these firings, requested the um, jackets on all of every single one of the people that Eisenhower fired. He wanted to see their files. He wanted to dig in and find out, were they actually subversives? You know, did they actually have communist ties? What we know now is that, no, most of them didn't. Most of them were, uh, you know. Um, fell into a lot of different categories, but very few of them actually legitimately had any ties to communist organizations. So Moss gets denied at this time. Yeah, The administration says, no, you can't have the employee files of, of those folks. And Congress doesn't really do anything about it at all. Moss is um, in the minority party as a freshman member of the House, really has no power himself to take on any of but by 1955, he does. And Moss was a very politically astute member of Congress. And, you know, at the beginning of the new Congress in January of 1955, he goes to Speaker Rayburn, um, makes his case with the Speaker that he wants to be on, on more powerful committees, uh, including either the Judiciary Committee or the Government uh, Oversight Committee. And apparently, according to, Um, uh, some of the documents on this Rayburn and Moss get into a bit of an argument that day and Moss leaves feeling somewhat deflated that um, he blew his chance of getting on a better committee. Uh, Rayburn apparently uh, found Moss to be quite refreshing and enjoyed his uh, assertiveness. And so Rayburn puts him on the government operations committee as you know, today it would be the government oversight committee and Moss begins to petition uh, the chair of that committee to say, "Hey, I've got this great issue. Um, you know, Congress is requesting information from the White House and are being denied left and right access to that information. We should really look into this." And so, by the spring of 1955, you get the creation of the Special Subcommittee on Government Information. Moss is placed as chair of that committee. Now, at the time, there were only three members of uh, of the House put on the special subcommittee, but they were given broad jurisdiction to investigate and oversee any information policies coming out of the executive branch. And so it could cover any agency, any department, um, and really cover anybody. And now you see the issue becomes institutionalized in Congress as well. So in a sense, it's this learned response. Congress sees the White House beginning to deny all kinds of information to them. They feel like this is both a good issue politically as well as it's uh, an important issue for democracy when it comes to congressional oversight. And so they begin to – or they create this special subcommittee that allows them then access to begin investigations, um, which Moss immediately does. He starts by sending a questionnaire out to uh, every, brand, uh, every agency and department in the executive branch – Uh, wanting them to go into specific details on what their information policies are when it comes to providing information either to Congress or to the press.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: And so Moss is a kind of um, Elijah Cummings of his day, apparently, Um, in terms of of not only having the power to, um, you know, sort of ask for the information as Elijah Cummings has been doing, but also apparently being a bit of a thorn in the side of the president at the time. Um, because he has been given a sort of scope of power that um, hadn't been used in that way by Congress before. Is that
2: correct? Yeah, exactly. And so in, in part because of the creation of executive privilege. And, and at the time, too, it's, I, I should note, um, executive privilege existed in a much broader sense once Eisenhower brought it into being. Uh, meaning that really any member of the administration. So, you know, from cabinet members all the way down to uh, any uh, executive branch uh, employee could assert executive privilege. So, you know, if a member of the press or if Congress contacted any office and asked, you know, if, if they could have access or they want, you know, wanted access to some kind of information, um, any executive branch uh, person could say, I'm sorry, that's covered under executive privilege. We're not going to allow that to happen. And so this was in some ways something new, uh, and especially because Eisenhower um, asserted it as a constitutional power that that Congress hadn't really um, examined before. And in part, I think it was new because information was being controlled in a much stronger way than it had been, uh, at least in some ways prior to World War II. Um, and because of the threats faced by the Cold War. And so in a way, you see the administration perhaps going too far when it comes to control of information. Um, But at the same time, Congress needed new or needed to learn to figure out new ways to address what was going on. And so the creation of this, of of what became known as the Moss Subcommittee Um, was a very important step for Congress to take because now it did institutionalize not just the issue, but it gave Congress the power to respond to the White House in different ways with the committee um, where they could subpoena for information if need be and pursue those channels that they wouldn't have had prior to that.
1: So this, this kind of brings up the, the overarching, I think, thesis of your book, which I think is really interesting in context of understanding, you know, this sort of freedom of information act itself, but also what it does, which is, as you've sort of laid out, that the executive branch had sort of been moving into this direction of presidential privilege and keeping information or deciding what information Congress could and couldn't have. And so Congress then institutionally decides that it's going to move in this direction of saying, well, we can get this information from you, the executive branch, be you the president or, you know, the undersecretary of agriculture. Um, But your sort of your argument in your book is really interesting in that you sort of say FOIA is fascinating as a policy tool. Um, and we have to think about it as as a sort of means of policy making. Um, and since you've laid out this great historical and sort of political dynamic groundwork, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by how FOIA is this kind of a tool?
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting because as a policy, it, it reshaped our institutions. And so you know, I I argue in the book that that FOIA becomes a congressional, it's a a congressional check on executive power in some ways, but it does transform our institutions um, as a response to, uh, largely to executive privilege. And and, and it was funny, we were talking about Eisenhower a moment ago. Um, You know, Kennedy becomes president in 1960, and now you have unified democratic government. Um, But Kennedy doesn't, Change anything when it comes to executive privilege. It, it changes a little bit because Kennedy asserts the power that only pres- that only on the president's authority will executive privilege um, be invoked. But the use by the administration doesn't really change at all. And Kennedy, and followed by Johnson, um, both continue to utilize executive privilege, whether officially or unofficially, and so. You know, part of, uh, and I guess, as I said at the beginning, you know, my, my journey here was was looking at FOIA as a policy in, in the first place, but also thinking about how policy transforms our institutions. And so, you know, thinking about the policy itself as a check on executive power, you know, it, it created an entirely new bureaucratic structure, if you will, within the executive branch, Um, But it also hit on every other branch as well. So, you know, for the president, it means that every um, agency and department has to have a FOIA process in place. For Congress, it meant a backstop for them that if they're being denied information, that there is a process that gets put into place where even members of Congress can utilize FOIA to get information from the executive branch. Um, So, you know, it gives them an an additional tool outside of saying, um, you know, outside of subpoenas or outside of seeking then um, uh, court backing of subpoenas, um, even if denied, um, that that it gives them a a different route. But because FOIA ended up having a um, the appeals and lawsuit mechanism. Uh, the legal mechanism put into place, which means that if a request is made under FOIA and it's denied um, either in full or in part that that request can be appealed. And if the appeal is denied or excuse me, if the appeal is denied, then the requester can file suit in federal court and ask a judge to weigh in on whether that information can be made public or not. Um, And as I had mentioned before, this was something in in my previous life that I had a lot of experience with um, using FOIA um, and and actually filing suits, uh, not myself, but the organization I work for um, to get access to information and and to public records. And so in a way, you know, this is one of the things I love about this policy in a way, it almost is a perfect piece of policy when we think about what the great society was trying to do. Um, it it transformed our institutions. It created avenues of access to information, but it also transformed our government's interactions with its citizens because anybody can file a FOIA request. Anybody can ask for access to government information through the process. And so in a way it created, uh, you know, what we would consider citizen oversight today. I mean, FOIA has... Really from the beginning, um, as Moss got a lot of support from members of the press, um, the press continued to use FOIA constantly, but a lot of other folks do as well. And we've seen, especially with the current Trump administration, uh, a lot of um, advocacy organizations or, or, you know, uh, government ethics and watchdog groups um, use FOIA to... Get a lot of information. And so in some ways, you know, back to one of your first questions about our our democratic health and how this all fits in there, you know, FOIA becomes a great tool to, uh, I would argue, to help um, give democracy greater strength by allowing uh, anyone, whether you're just an individual um, or a member of Congress, uh, access to be able to request and get information from our government
1: and And you, you know, you do trace this the the sort of way it it does evolve and and that's, you know, I've often thought about FOIA not necessarily as one of Congress's main tools for oversight, um, but as one of the tools that the people have. Um, But your argument in the book is, no, 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 yes, it is a tool that the people have, but it's also, fascinatingly, um, something that Congress then institutionalized in order to try to wrestle with the executive as it was growing and adapting to the Cold War and the national security demands. Um, and then of course we get to Nixon, <laughs> um, cause you know, we always get to Nixon, why not? Oh, okay. Um, and so, so, I mean, I, I don't, we don't have to go through all the presidents that you pay attention to, but can you talk a little bit about why, I mean, it's sort of, sort of obvious probably to some listeners, why Nixon is particularly important with regard to our understanding both of presidential privilege and of the Freedom of Information Act?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Nixon. Nixon was out. Is a. I mean, he's so fascinating in so many different ways. Um, so, you know, the 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 bill uh, FOIA as as policy passes with Johnson, it's implemented in 1967, and so Nixon becomes really the first president. To deal with FOIA in a lot of ways, and 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 overall, and especially in the early years of FOIA, at least up until um, 1974, um, it, it was kind of a mess policy-wise. See, one of the weaknesses that ended up with Congress is that in the in the bill that that created the freedom of information act they did not specify an actual process all of that was left open and it was done so purposefully in part because that was the deal that moss worked out with uh, johnson in order to get try and get the administration support and signing the bill was to to ease some of the tensions that that a lot of the cabinet members and executive agencies felt about having to open up these kinds of records so Nixon comes in and in the very Nixonian fashions, you know, is giving a lot of lip service early on about, you know, the importance of open government, transparency. He's going to be this great transparent president. Um, and he begins to reform a lot of policies around this. Uh, now, Nixon's track record in those early years of FOIA is, is not that terrible. But what begins to happen, though, with Nixon, is, as we know, is, is he begins to utilize executive privilege more and more, uh, not often officially invoking executive privilege, but often hinting at it in interactions with members of Congress um, or with the public about just not being open to uh, providing information when requested. And in fact, in many ways, you know, Nixon expands the definition of executive privilege. Um, you know, as I, as we had talked about early on with Eisenhower and even with Kennedy and Johnson, you know, they saw executive privilege um, would only be invoked really when a national security um, was necessary or in the public's best interest. And so they used it pretty sparingly um, officially. Nixon went further than that though, and began to argue that executive privilege, really covered any internal white house communications that the president needed to have confidence in communications with uh his staff with advice from um, you know anybody that he spoke to within the executive branch or with um, uh, for example with re-election with any of his um, campaign folks as well and that all of that would be covered by executive privilege this is far more of of the modern definition that we think of it today Um, And one that we've seen, for example, with the Trump administration. And so Congress begins to deal with this, um, seeing this expansion. And I found some great examples at the Nixon Library um, of of letters that John Dean was sending to um, different congressional committees that were requesting either testimony or certain documents Uh, You know, regarding um, congressional investigations um, and oversight, you know, nothing scandalous at this point, um, just really a lot of what we would consider, you know, kind of regular business at at that time. And Dean would phrase these letters in such a beautiful manner where he would write back saying, well, you know, both you and I know that um, the president's given certain privileges and that he has the right to refuse information so you know we're going to go ahead and say no we're not going to make this person available to your committee or we're not going to give you that documentation and in a way you know dean is is not Invoking executive privilege, but he's hinting at it. And so it's almost like this informal executive privilege or just a presidential privilege where, you know, um, Dean's saying, no, we're not giving you any of this information, but he's not having to specifically invoke executive privilege, which would require Nixon's authorization. And then it would also, you know, kind of officially go on the record that. Um, Nixon was invoking executive privilege and one of the things in 72 that Nixon campaigned on was transparency and he claimed he had only invoked executive privilege once during um, his first term as president and so you know it was an example of how open and transparent he was. As the Watergate investigations begin to unfold and, and all of this stuff begins to happen by 1973 And into 1974, you know, Congress is looking at this and especially um, Sam Irvin, who is uh, chairing the Senate Judiciary Committee that that is really running some of the um, the the Watergate impeachment inquiry and doing a lot of the investigations into what was going on. They begin to push back hard on Nixon and in part because Nixon really ramps up his use of executive privilege um, for everything around Watergate. And it gets to this point where. Early into 1973, uh, the Senate, the Senate Democrats, uh, the Senate Democratic Caucus, actually votes on and passes this. It's kind of a meaningless resolution just within their caucus, where they make the claim that Congress has a legislative privilege. Um, That that actually is stronger than executive privilege, and so Article
1: One. Article
2: (laughs) Congress says that uh, that we have Article One, and that we have this power. So, even if the president invokes executive privilege, that any person or documents to which the president is invoking executive privilege, they still have to come before Congress, even if they refuse to answer questions. Um, and all of this And so that really doesn't go anywhere but it gives you some insight into thinking about you know how Congress was really looking at different ways of trying to address what Nixon was doing. And so you see this um, th- again the the intertwined nature of of FOIA and and executive privilege um, because of Nixon's expansion of it and Congress trying to, figure out different ways to get information um, when FOIA's requests are denied, when subpoenas are being denied. Um, and as we know, a lot of this ends up now going to the Supreme Court over the, the you know, the so-called smoking gun tapes. And it's really the court that institutionalizes the power of executive privilege in in the US v. Nixon decision. So the court gives a narrow ruling, but in it, they do state that they recognize legitimacy um, for the president's need to have confidence in conversations with staff and advisors and all that, that there is a place for executive privilege, um, just not in cases of potential criminality or illegality, which is what got Nixon caught up on. But what you have then and in part what's really interesting is that from Eisenhower in nineteen fifty four until Nixon in nineteen seventy four with the Supreme Court decision in July of nineteen seventy four, you have twenty years that executive privilege existed as as really an argument. It was merely just the president's assertion that this privilege was there, that it was inherent within the constitution. And now we see it become a legitimized executive power because of the Supreme Court. Um, The the last piece of the Nixon case that I'll just throw in that that's fascinating is that Congress begins to amend FOIA during, um, during this time in 1973 and 74. And so by 1974 is It really is as all the Watergate stuff is blowing up, Congress has drafted amendments to uh, the Freedom of Information Act in part as a response to Nixon as well, realizing some of the weaknesses of the original bill and putting greater oversight measures within the policy uh, that would require, for example, um, the 74 amendments require every agency to issue an annual report that details how many requests, FOIA requests they get. Um, how many of those requests are denied, how many of those denials end up as a lawsuit, you know, um, things like that. And the bill itself, the amendments, were sitting in a conference committee when Nixon resigns. And it's sitting there, um, actually, when Jerry Ford's first week as president, um, uh, Senator Kennedy, who was the uh, sort of the chair of the conference committee, sends Ford a letter saying, hey, uh, by the way, our, this conference committee's finished its work. We're sending you the FOIA amendments this week. And Ford uh, kind of freaks out, asks them for some time, which they give. Um, and then that turns into this battle over the first FOIA amendments that that began with Nixon, but ended up um, with Jerry Ford.
1: And I mean, and you also note the fact that, you know, as recently as 2016, there was a congressional sort of amendment um, in response to the Obama administration that in the post 9-11 period, we've also seen different approaches and understandings of how the executive wants to classify a lot of things under executive privilege. And then of course, there's the Trump administration, um, which may be following the trajectory, but it also seems like it may be operating at a different realm in terms of some of the FOIA. Can you speak a little bit to that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, you know, FOIA has been amended multiple times and and I bring it up in the book and, and some research I'm working on now wants to carry it forward, you know, starting with Carter. Um, all the way through to Trump. Uh, Because, you know, when policy gets passed, uh, you know, the issue itself doesn't die. And FOIA is a wonderful example of this as well, because then we end up in this sort of constant um, implementation oversight amendment cycle, if you will. And it it functions largely like a legislative development cycle would, um, where the bill is changed. And FOIA has been amended, I believe, at least a half dozen times since it was originally passed. Like, as you mentioned, 2016 being the last where Congress sought to, to institutionalize some of what Obama did on day one with his executive order about openness and transparency. The Trump administration has moved this in many ways. Um, there are a lot of parallels back to Nixon. Um, the Trump administration continues or has made and continues to make a lot of similar arguments that Nixon did. Um, and not just using executive privilege, but the reasoning and, and arguing what is covered by executive privilege. So really expanding a lot of it. Um, you know, one question that had popped to mind as, as I was working on this, um, I, I opened with it in the preface was, um, was Steve Bannon testifying before Congress and invoking executive privilege. And I was curious to see, you know, was this going to apply to campaign activity? And would we allow executive privilege to cover activity that, for example, the Trump campaign was doing prior to becoming president, and I would assume, and again, I'm not a legal scholar, but I would assume legally speaking, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. But politically, that could be made. And so, you know, seeing how the current um, administration has used this, they definitely have invoked, I mean, the Trump administration has invoked executive privilege far more than we've seen any other administration since um, Nixon, at least, uh, use it. And he, they are using it to cover a lot of different areas. And um, the other tool that, that this administration has used, I've noticed... Um, as kind of a pushback in a different way, is the use of lawsuits. So, you know, the administration suing different folks. Um, we, we've seen a few of those recently. Um, for example, when when the Government Oversight Committee requested uh, records from several of, of the Trump company's banks, um, and they sued the banks to prevent them, you know, claiming that they couldn't release those records, you know. So, you're seeing these issues play out again. It's different than Nixon, but there are certain similarities that exist. And and once again, we're at a place where I think Congress is trying to grapple with and figure out how to overcome many of the walls that this administration has put back into place or has constructed on its own. I just realized maybe "wall" wasn't the best term to use. <laughs> um, but but barrier, the, barrier. There you go. The barrier put into place. Um. So you know I feel like we're kind of back in a in a similar place that was looked at in the book, like with Nixon or Eisenhower, where you have a strong you have a an executive who is strongly making a lot of claims to power, especially against Congress. Right now, you're seeing Congress trying to utilize a lot of its tools that they've had um, and that have been in place. Uh, to overcome those, but are not succeeding probably very well. So I would not be surprised to see um, in the future and whether that happens while Trump is still in office or after, Um, we probably will see some new policies. And that could mean uh, either amendments to something like FOIA or um, new policy being constructed that overcomes some of these um, barriers that that the Trump administration has put into place.
1: And I think you hinted at this in your last response, but it sounds like you have a project that moves a lot of this analysis forward from Carter to Trump. So can you tell me a little bit about what you're working on
2: now? Sure. Um, and this is just in its infancy, um, but, you know, my idea is to to expand um, on what I've done with this book, um, ideally into a, into another one, but looking at now more of that process where, where the main focus of, of this book has been on the development of the Freedom of Information Act. Um, but now looking at it in the post Nixon world, Um, and taking the same situation, you know, use of executive privilege, denial of information, and the politics surrounding that, and really how Congress and the executive branch uh, get along, if you will, or not, um, through that time period, but moving it from Carter all the way to Trump. And as, as we were just talking about, I mean, I feel with the current administration, Um, so many of these issues have moved back to the, back to the fore. Um, I I mean, we started seeing this really post nine 11, um, you know, with things like WikiLeaks and, and people like Edward Snowden or Chelsea Manning, you know, that, that control and understanding of information becomes very vital and it is a strong political tool as well. And so, um, you know, Congress has political motivations, the white house has political motivations and how they deal with these things become a telling way to see um, how we will progress from here. And so, yes, I'm, I've, I've just slowly started. I'm hoping um, soon I will actually be going to the Carter Library to start digging into some of this stuff and, and would like to, to bring the a second project that expands and, and looks at this, you know, and that whole implementation oversight amendment process and the politics of that um, from Carter to Trump.
1: So when you finish that book, will you come back on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about it?
2: Of course. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank
1: you. Uh, Thank you, Kevin Barron, for joining me today to talk about Presidential Privilege and the Freedom of Information Act, which was published in 2019 by Edinburgh University Press. I assume one can get a hold of this book at all of the usual places online, but especially and including the Edinburgh University Press website. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess if, if you're in North America, it's um, you can go to Oxford University Press as well, um, that they handle a lot of the distribution for Edinburgh University Press in the United States and Canada.
1: Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kevin.
2: Thank you, Lily. It was great to be here.
1: My pleasure.